Welcome back to Revelation On Demand Podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing you Revelation from the Bible. I'm your host, Justin D. Myers, and I'm joined today, as usual, by Mr. Chris Hess. How you doing, buddy? And you're our host, J.D. Myers, and you're joined today by me. <laughs> yes, yes, you're back. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. I was making sure that you were doing our full opening there, because normally I'm here, and I'm used to that. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> it's just been a busy past month really that i haven't been here um you know i had to deal with the loss of a good friend and um you know some other stuff going on uh but i'm really glad to be back well we're glad to have you back chris so some news uh i've been looking at moving states uh we were looking at land in nebraska the past couple days and we haven't found anything yet but uh there, there is an opportunity that maybe we can increase the frequency at which this podcast uh, posts. So that could be something coming in the future. Uh, not anytime soon at this point, but it was just something I was thinking about. If I could change my schedule, then I could uh, definitely record more often right yeah, now. I'm, 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 I'm always down with that. that. Yeah, yeah, I know. So that's just an update on what's going on with my life. If you got nothing else to add, then we can continue on to the show because we got quite a beefy show this this uh, week. We do have a beefy show, and might I say, might I say, my friend, it is Easter weekend, is it mm-hmm. not? Yes, it is. Uh, we're recording on Good Friday. Our listeners will get this on Easter Sunday. So uh, this year we decided we're actually going to do an Easter episode to uh, – learn a little bit more about the, the things that go on during the Easter holiday. And then maybe you can recognize some of the, the prophecy and, and uh, spiritual language that's talked about in the Easter story. Next time you hear it at church, which should be this weekend. Or you'll have some idea because a lot of this is in the fancier books of the Bible. Yeah, just yeah. for the record, we're begun varying um, mostly John today mm-hmm. uh, because of the fact that he talks about it in the most depth, and um, you know, to be frank, he also covers the crucifixion itself. So, yeah, yeah. And that being said, most of the gospels, excuse me, most of the gospels cover the the crucifixion. It's just uh, John; he points out the places where it's like, well, this prophecy was fulfilled. And this prophecy was fulfilled, so it makes it easier for us to just, you know, stop and say, okay, well, here's the prophecy he was talking about, and we can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. For those who want to follow along at home, we're going to be starting in John 19, verse 16. So to kind of catch everyone up, at this point, Jesus has already been beaten. Uh, The Pharisees have gotten Pilate to condemn him, and, and, you know, they called for his execution, not the other Jesus that Pilate had incarcerated that was a rebel. And um, so Jesus has come to be the sacrifice for this world, and this is is how uh, God had kind of planned to use it all to come together, so... It's as unfortunate as it is. I mean, yeah. this is, and this is not long after. Um, if you remember the the most one of the most famous verses in the Bible is the shortest verse in the Bible, which is Jesus wept, where you're talking about um, where Judas had turned him in to the authorities uh, because they were looking out for him and came up with all this stuff. And, um, you know, Jesus was having a conversation with God in the middle of the garden, and. Um, 
you know, he basically got napped. And then, you know, what, what, what Justin's talking about is there's an additional Jesus that was framed to be him. And what he did is he stood himself out in the crowd and said, nope, I'm the guy. You let this guy go. And unfortunately, neither of them got let go. Well, no, Jesus Barabbas did get let go because it was custom that Pilate, that the Roman people would do. They'd let one person go at the time of, of uh, the Passover. Just really? Kinda, yeah, they would. So Jesus Barabbas got let go, but he was just like a rebel and a, and a, he'd stir trouble up, basically. So, uh, whatever. Yeah, well, so, no, the crowd the crowd was stirred up to call for Jesus, so like Jesus the Messiah to be crucified. So No yeah, that too. Yeah. Christ so, is. This this is where we're joining the story. We're joining the story on the way to or Jesus carrying the cross to the place he will be crucified. Yeah, which is by far if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, mm. uh, it's probably the most brutal part of the movie. Yeah. And it's awful what they did to him. Yeah, but it is. We'll get into some detail with that here soon. It yep. really is heartbreaking. Mm. All right. So we'll, we'll dive into verse and, uh, you know, we're at verse 16, as he said. Uh, any further comments before we get started, brother? No, let's get into it. And then we can start talking about things that are going on. All righty. Let's begin. Finally, Pilate handed him over to to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had noticed had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write to the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took off his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened to... This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. So right off the bat there, that's Pilate, not Pilate. <laughs> that's Pilate? Yes, I heard that's Pilate. Pilate. <laughs> I know. It's, it's a Pilate. Oh, it's a Bosi. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so we see that, that he's going out to the place called Golgotha, which is you a know, place of the skull. And this is part of the place where we get such a reference for, you know, the skull being the image of death and all that. So he's he's literally going out to the, the place of death <clears throat> to be crucified. 
and the the sign was was written in the most common languages of the time. Aramaic was the language most Judeans would have known in the area. Uh, Latin was the official language of Rome, so this is how they they did most of their documentation is in Latin. And then Greek was the trade language of the area. So the entire Mediterranean, you spoke Greek to, to know how to trade. So a lot of people were fairly trilingual, but even so they, they still wrote this in three different languages so that no matter what anyone knew, they would, they would be able to read this. And then we see yeah. here that we, we got the first, uh, the, the first one we're going over the happened in scripture might be fulfilled where they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And, uh, I didn't find the exact reference for this, but I believe this is in the Psalms again. Uh, we'll be seeing a few in the Psalms that point towards what happens during the crucifixion where it's talking about how he, you know, people would pierce his side and would weep for him and, they would divide his clothes among them and cost and, and cast lots, which basically is is pulling straws or, or you know rolling dice to see who has the best number. Basically, they're they're gambling for his clothes. So yeah, which I mean to be fair, I mean this is going to sound bad, but I got to say it at some point. If my clothes were worth that much, I mean. It, 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 I don't know. I, I might consider my options. No, no. I mean, it's just talk about sheer humiliation at mm. that rate. Like, you're guaranteed to be dead. So here's something that we're going to be doing in your memory. And it's like, wow. Not to mention clothing was was much more valued back then because it took a lot of time to make clothing. It's not like today where we have factories that just pump out clothes and they're kind of... <clears throat> cheap and well they're really easy to get and a lot of people have more clothes than they know what to do with uh back then a lot of people would not have very many clothes they might have one maybe two at the most sets of clothing so right yeah so this this is this is why the soldiers are gambling because he had a nice robe and uh, uh they of course they would they would see if they can't get as much from the people they're crucifying as possible. So it wasn't just Jesus they were doing this, but uh, Jesus had a particularly nicer clothing that would was not necessarily as you know beat up as some of these criminals who were being drugged to crosses. Like they they probably weren't wearing the most intact of clothing. So. His followers truly did love him, and they take they took great care of him, and that's why mm-hmm. he returned the favor and washed their feet and mm-hmm. treated them to the Last Supper and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So why don't we go ahead and dive into the next section? It's not as long. It's got a lot more to it, though. So yes, it's a little bit more in depth. So mm-hmm. you'll be going over several more points instead of just your introductory. What is going to happen to Jesus's robes? Even though mm-hmm. that's pretty important, because if you think mm-hmm. about it, that's an ancient artifact of mm-hmm. something that is still widely renowned. And I would love to know what happened to him. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Starting at verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
That's a lot of Marys there, by the way. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So going back to the top, we see a bunch of Marys, as you pointed out. And uh, one Mary isn't really mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, and that's the Mary, wife of Clopas. Uh, could be the wife or mother of whoever Clopas is, but uh, Clopas is never mentioned again in the Bible. So, so we don't but know who sure. he is. Yeah, we're, we're unsure of the importance of this Mary. But many people kind of agree that it's one of the Marys that was following him. And, of course, not Mary Magdalene or his mother Mary. Uh but this is this is one of the three Marys, and maybe there was significance in the number of Marys there. Uh, not one hundred percent sure on that. Mary Magdalene, and talk about a genuine friend of his too. Yeah, no, and this was this was the first lady he he exercised from demons. So yeah. Mary became a very close follower of, of Jesus after that. She's known as like the the, the queen disciple, <laughs> not the, mm. the queen disciple. You know, she's not in any romantic affiliation with Jesus. Jesus had mm. no romantic affiliation, just for the record. Um, yeah, for anyone who ever hears that theory from science and says, yeah, he took off on a horse somewhere. And, okay, whatever. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't like that stuff. But yeah. um, no, I mean, like she's known as like the pretty much his his female disciple Mm -hmm. because of the way that they connected really. And she's remarkable in the way that she would help him out, including when, um, in, you know, the man that could stand once again. And uh, I don't know the actual name of that, (laughs) that miracle, but yeah, that's the way I call it. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's interesting to have, you know, all these significant people there that share a similar name. I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily sure of the significance of that on an existential level, but mm. it's still interesting to me nonetheless. And it's very heartbreaking that the the main women of his life had to watch that, especially them. Like mm. there were men among the crowd that were uh, part of his disciplery and the apostles even, but most of them didn't even show up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, one of the major significance of this is that the women were the ones there uh, you know, witnessing this. And of course at the time women weren't, weren't treated as they are today where they're, they were treated more as property, which is part of the reason why we see Jesus giving his mother to one of his disciples, which I believe is John, the one who's writing all this. So at the time women would need support of a man. And of course, many people are like, well, what happened to her husband? So many scholars believe at this time, Joseph was either passed away or just far too old to be able to take care of Mary. So we, we don't ever see Joseph again in the story after the incident with the temple when Jesus was 12 years old. So again, we don't know if he passed on or if, if he was in fact uh, just, 
so old at that point because 50 years old would be ancient back then. I mean, we, right. we, we can get up to 90, 100 with medical help, and often that leads to not the greatest quality of life. But back then, 50 was really old. And so. as we learned in the Christmas episode, he betrothed Mary when she was a younger woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what, as per tradition back then, yeah. I, there wasn't any legal paperwork that said, okay, well, she's not 18, so you yeah. can't be doing that. It was mm-hmm. because, you know, we also talked about proportionally, like, you know, once you hit a certain age back then, I mean, that could mean that you're actually like, you know, as part as your lifespan goes, like he was just saying, like, you know, 16, 17 was considered genuinely acceptable because most people didn't make it to like 40 or 50 mm-hmm. um, and were shorter, but we went over that too. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it was commonplace for women to get married around 14 and very common for women to, to marry much older men. So that's, that's where we see a lot of these, these uh, tropes or, or stories where the mother-in-law is living with, her her daughter's family or son's family because right. her husband is long since gone because again they were able to marry much younger women to the tune of you know 10 to 12 years older which still happens today but it's not as common yeah that'd be that'd be like the equivalent of uh yeah we didn't want to go there but <laughs> We really don't. We're just trying to give you a cultural adaptation and idea as to what was going on mm-hmm. with that, even as much as we don't want to go over that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, but it's a very true thing. Mm-hmm. So, yes. So, getting into some of the prophecy and, and some of the uh, spiritual symbolism, we see the sour wine, which may have referred to Psalm sixty-nine twenty-one, which says... They gave me also golf for my food and my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And uh, this, this would be part of that psalm that's talking about the, the, cruci- or the, the death of the Christ where uh, many things are happening to him that happened in the actual crucifixion narrative. And uh, a lot of people say that this vinegar to drink would be symbolic of the sins that Jesus was taking on himself as he became the sacrifice. Then we see the hyssop plant, which was used clear back in Exodus to paint the door frames in, in uh, the, the Exodus account. So we see they used a part of the hyssop plant, more likely the stock, less of the fibrous ends to, to give Jesus this drink. And uh, again, it's it's referencing back to the first Passover with this hyssop plant. And then uh, he says it is finished, which means at this point he has taken on the sin of the world. He is the perfect sinless sacrifice, and he is giving up his spirit, which basically he's dying on the cross, which in the next section we will get into a little bit of the brutality of crucifixion. Yeah, unfortunately, that's part of it, too. And it's interesting because proportionally, or even perspectively, I should say, we often put ourselves into the eyes of what Jesus means to us had he have committed any of these miracles in front of us at all, and we have awe and inspire for him. But in this ancient world, and before his salvation was brought to the earth, 
it was a really roughed up place. It's still a roughed up place in terms of sin, and that will never change until we are all exempt from it. And that is post-rapture. We've gone over mm. that. But, you know, this place was just so brutal physically and condemn, like condemningly that, like, you know, we could take the modern world and go, that's nothing compared to how evil people were back then. Yeah. And isn't that crazy? But I mean, you know, history does tend to repeat itself and we've, we've developed into a society that is back in war once again. So it's kind of hard to think about that, but like, you know, you couldn't walk the streets without something horribly nasty happening to you every single day. And I mean, debatably we're getting back into that, but anyway, uh, I'm not going to get too much into philosophy for right now. So, uh, so continuing on at verse 31. All right. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want their bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate, not bloody, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Um, Justin will get into detail why that is here in a minute. Yeah. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus. And then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So here we go. Crucifixion and the brutality that there is. So we see that the, the, the Sadducees and the, the Pharisees had asked Pilate to take the bodies down because it was bad bad juju, bad luck against the Torah laws to leave a body hanging during the Sabbath. So um, right. you can see that they're more concerned with the Sabbath than necessarily Jesus's death. But of course, as we see, it doesn't matter. Jesus has already died. So uh, yes. the way crucifixion works is if you stick your arms out, it's not just like that. Like they overextend mm. your arms. They, they will sometimes dislocate uh, shoulders to to nail your arms to the to the crossbar, and then Very they forcible. would nail yeah, and then they would nail your feet most of the time to the to the cross on this little foot step that you would have. So in that position, the only way you can breathe is to pull up or push up on your your feet and hands, and and let your diaphragm contract. Because at that point, it's stretched out as far as it is, as it can go. And you can't breathe unless you lift yourself on the cross. So this was a very slow and painful way to die. And basically, you would exhaust yourself to the point that you couldn't lift yourself anymore and then you'd suffocate. Um, so what they would do is they'd break the legs, which would make it even harder to lift yourself. Uh, so we see that the two thieves that are on the cross have not died yet. So they break their legs to quicken the, 
the execution. Because at that point, if your legs are broken, you can't lift yourself. But of course, they come to Jesus and like, oh, he's already dead. We don't need to break his legs. So that goes to the Passover lamb from Exodus again, where in Exodus twelve forty six it says, "In one house shall be eaten, and thou shalt not carry forth aught the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break the bone thereof." And that is the prophecy, and it says, I think, in another prophet that they won't break his bones. Uh, Right. And uh, for those of you who don't know, like, um, how a lot of this goes, also in field and practice and in battle even, um, you kind of make sure someone's dead when you ought to carry out that. Um, when you ought to carry that out. So by them piercing his side was their way of making sure, is he gone? Is he gone? Yes. Um, you'll see often even in movies where they um, will remove a weapon aside from someone that's been recently shot um, or you know it's been taken down to make sure that they don't get back up. Well, in all reality, um, most people end up getting hit or fully done in again just to make sure that someone's down so they do this too in the in the terms of execution back then because how brutal it was but also as a means of further you know further digging the grave and it's it's horrible but they're they're confirming that that he was dead now the romans they were they were you know the the kings of death back then so they would know but even them they still, you know, like, oh, I think he's dead. He's not breathing. He's not moving. Let's just stab him to make sure he's not actually like feigning it or or swooning, you know. So, right. And then we it see is. this this the stabbing, which is actually from Zechariah twelve ten. It says, "I'll pour out on the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look on to me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn him." As one mourneth his for his only son, it shall be in the bitterness for him, as one that is bitterness for his firstborn. So we see here that this is a prophet that was long before uh, Jesus's time, and, and it it prophesied that Jesus, that the Messiah would be uh, would be pierced. And of course, it's not saying he'll be pierced with a spear, but it is saying he'll be pierced. And it's the, the constant, it's the, the multiple smaller prophecies that are fulfilled that become this much larger body of, of information that makes it easier for me specifically to believe that Jesus was the sacrifice, was the son of God. And he did come to die for our sins. And we see this, then, I mean, on a brighter note, that's the best part about the Bible is you could cross-reference yeah. uh, a lot. You can take a lot of stuff from the past, reference it to the future, future, mm-hmm. and what that correlates with the past. It's crazy how yeah. you all break it down at the end of the day. You're like, how did they know about this years? And it's not like all this was compiled, and we have the NIV Bible in 2022, and we're like, well, they just came up with that. No, we're taking actual sources of documents, a Torah that's been around since God only knows how long, to documents that were sourced to the New Testament, and you just got to you know, trace it all back. Then it's like, this was written at this time and place. How the heck did they know? 
Yeah, because parts of the Old Testament were written 500 to 1,000 years before the New Testament ever started to you know, come together. So it's it's not – it's a book that was written over centuries, literally. Right. So And then we see this blood and water, which a lot of medical professionals today like to point out that uh, if you're hung on a cross like that, that – when you die, there is a separation in your chest cavity where water and blood can separate in that way because of right. the way they're hanging on the cross. So they, they, this is one of the, the modern facts, I believe that help point to the fact that Jesus was actually dead. Not to mention, you know, I'm pretty sure if he wasn't dead getting stabbed in the side by a spear, he was dead then, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, but yeah, I think culmination that's, that's of a parietal good, fluid as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's I think that's a a good modern example of of just a fact that helps us better understand what's going on in this this whole narrative. Now we're we're going to move into the burial and the eventual resurrection of Jesus here in uh, verse thirty eight. Yes. So this is going to cover the burial first. Later, Joseph of. Ar- Okay, hang on. i got to learn how to say this word. Arimathea. Arimathea. Okay. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came up and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So we see two characters from uh, Jesus's ministry that I've mentioned before, uh, Joseph Arimathea and uh, Nicodemus. And it's, it's, it's Joseph is obviously a wealthy trader of some sort because him having access to a brand new tomb in Jerusalem, which you got to think of even at this time was an ancient city. So having, the money to buy a plot of land where you can dig a new tomb, that would be uh, quite a bit of money. And then we see Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who was very interested in Jesus and and was very near uh, actually following him at one point. And uh, and he may very well followed him, but uh, we see him bring 75 pounds of of this uh, myrrh and aloes, which was stuff that was used to prepare a body for uh, desiccation, which is the common practice. Uh, We've talked a few times about bone boxes and ossuaries where they would uh, wrap the bodies in in a way that would uh, speed up the decay process and get them to bone quicker so that they could place the bones in these ossuaries. And just 75 pounds of this is, is a lot today even to think about. But back then, that was like a very rich amount. So, uh, And the, the myrrh was a very fragrant thing that would cover 
the smell of desiccation. So this was something that was only used in some of the most wealthy of tombs. So, Right. And proportionally, you kind of wanted your body weight to be about the same as your... Um, as about the same as your embalming resources. And they do that even with fluid, more mm-hmm. so practiced nowadays, embalming fluid, like they mm-hmm. did in Egypt in the ancient days. Um, so you want, uh, proportionally to how much fluid or how much mass is in the body in order for mm-hmm. you to be proportionate with it. And that's astonishing that they really did, you know, he went out of his way to be like, okay, no, we need to make this right about this. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and this 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 pointed to uh, another prophecy where Isaiah, in Isaiah it would be fifty three nine. It says, "And they made his grave with the wicked and a, with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth." So again, it's reinforcing that you know Jesus died as the sinless sacrifice, and he was treated as a rich man. Uh, and of course, he was buried in Jerusalem, which would be the place of the wicked. Uh, as many of our prophets like to tongue in cheek call Israel. Um, so we see, we see here, this is the entombing process. This is a place where uh, they bring Jesus and, and um, actually John doesn't go over this, but there is a lot of worry that Jesus was, his body was going to be stolen and they were going to fake his resurrection. So at the same time, like all this is going on, as soon as Pilate hears that, you know, he's, he's been laid to rest, then he's like, okay, cool. And then the Pharisees come and like, wait, wait, like seriously, they could steal his body and, and fake his resurrection. So Pilate was like, well, go take some guards and, and seal the tomb the best you know how. And I guess John just completely ignores this part. Uh, though some of the guards were mentioned later in in his story here, but so the Pharisees and, and the Romans have sealed the tomb after they have laid Jesus to rest in it, and of course then everyone's going to be doing stuff on the Sabbath. Well, not doing anything. They're they're supposed to rest and have a nice meal together and and praise God and all that sort of stuff. So uh, right. Saturday, which would be their Sabbath, would was going to be the day that nothing was really going on. So the Romans would be the only ones at the tomb, basically, while all the Jews and everyone would be, uh, you know, celebrating the Sabbath in some manner. Yes, of course. And, uh, that is also per tradition that even on spiritual holidays, we tend to take rest more often than not in our spiritual holidays now in modern day, mm-hmm. but, uh, they did like to party hardy. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was, was like a, a raving party, but it was definitely a, a celebration that they tried to, and it was the celebration of Passover this particular week. So right, it, was, yes. it was a very special Sabbath. It was the, the Sabbath where they were celebrating being brought out of Egypt and being saved by the Lord. And of course, little do they know they're being saved yet again by the Lord in his sacrifice. So with because all the someone had to get corrupt about it five minutes later, everything. Yeah. Yeah. So shall we finish this out in the in the first this is like the first ten verses of John twenty just to get us into the actual resurrection. 
Yeah, because there is a lot of detail that happens after the resurrection, but we're going to be focusing on the resurrection specifically here because that's most commonly what you're going to want to know fact from fact from uh, anything else that's being talked about post-resurrection. Uh, there's stuff that does go on there, but we're going to be covering what actually happened when uh, he just so happened to waltz out of the tomb and be like, hey, homies, what's up? <laughs> yeah. All right. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, aka John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen, uh, a.k.a. the underlayer and then the, you know, basically it was on top of it. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. They're all running in there. He saw and believed they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So, first day of week, we, we see this is a Sunday, which uh, I think most people still treat Sunday as the first day of the week, at least Christians do. So, this would be the third day. Um uh, I know that can get a little crazy, but the Jews, every every time, they don't think of days necessarily as strictly as we do. We kind of think of a day as 24 hours. They would th- say any part of a day would count as a day. So, you know, he was laid to rest Friday afternoon, and then Sunday morning, the body wasn't there anymore. So he would have risen that day, and that would have counted as three days. Right. So, and then the first people to see that Jesus was risen were women, which again, this is making the account less credible in the time because of the, the state there, the, the standing women were in, uh, you know, they were treated as property. They were not treated as, as good as witnesses as men. So the fact that they decided or that, that, I think this makes it more truthful of a statement that they would actually say, yes, women found this first and then came and told the disciples because, you know, disciples writing the story could have made themselves the hero as we've heard John, you know, do multiple times in this, this reading where he calls himself the, the disciple that Jesus loved. And it's kind of funny to see uh, that John and Peter seem to have some sort of competition here. Uh, especially when it comes to Jesus, because, I mean, John is constantly referring to himself as the disciple Jesus loved and kind of said, yeah, I got to this tomb first, you know, and uh, Paul was also known to kind of butt heads with, with, um, gosh, who was it? Uh, yeah, they a lot of them actually had a lot of conflict because you know just starting out they they go based off of faith and they're like mm-hmm. going across these vast distances like oh it's no big deal that he wants me to walk on water right now or mm-hmm. that he's walking on water right now just to prove a point or yeah. it's oh it's no big deal that we gotta just expect the unexpected but yes I do know that that you have a rivalry yeah, yeah so so we see that they're they're kind of dumbfounded about what they found and of course. 
they they're believing what they say. They believe his body's been moved, and, and several other renditions say that they weren't sure that he was raised. They think maybe someone took the body, but right. in this one, they just kind of you know like, well, he's gone, and of course they they would le- later connect two and two when they seen his risen body again. They would be like, oh, he raised from the dead, and that would be the catalyst for their strong faith because many of the the apostles would go on to die very brutal and tragic deaths that they could have avoided had they just renounced Jesus. But since they didn't because they knew the truth, uh, they, they continued on, which is something I like to think about whenever I'm feeling like this is tough to do. And yeah, uh, as far as like being part of the Matrodome, that is such true dedication. And it's interesting because in the Last Supper, Jesus talks about, you got to renounce me whether or not it happens because I don't want you guys getting hurt. Yeah. And they're like, no, we're never doing that to you. And he was like, okay, I'm cleaning all your feet. Y'all rock. And, you know, <laughs> for so on and so forth. And, okay, we're all brotherhood. You know, here's the body. Here's my body. Here's my blood. But, yeah, it's interesting how that all happened because think about an astonishing event in your life and it changed you to the point where you couldn't deny it Mm -hmm. and you couldn't even tell someone to save your own life you couldn't even do that because how dedicated you were to the cause of it that's incredible and that's how a lot of matrodome is seen in 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 the possible best glory is that they stuck by it till the very end yeah yeah and then uh, John doesn't talk about it here, but they would, he would mention an angel at the tomb and uh, then later go on to recount his appearances and tell more of that. But we're just focusing on the, the crucifixion and resurrection today as our Easter Sunday lesson. Uh, it was, yes. this is one of my better known stories. I definitely learned every, I learned something new every time I study this again, even though I know the story quite well and I understand most of the the importance of it and why this is such an important story. And I hope that today, if you're listening to this on Sunday, that you get a chance to uh, spend time with your family and praise God for what he's done for us in his sacrifice. And if you're listening to this later in the week, then I hope you had that opportunity with your family to praise him. And if you did John 20, by the way, yeah, Yeah. do it right now. And, and, you know, raise praise him now. If it's later on in the week, just because it's, it's so important what he did. It's so important that he came to be the sacrifice to cover our sins, no matter all our sins, past, present, future. All we have to do is accept him as our savior and we are covered. Yeah. What we did as a people to him, I feel like that is the most important thing aside from, and it is, well, I should say it is part of the salvation, mm. but aside from the way that it's conveyed, uh, you know, how we need to be glorious about it, and we do, is what we did to this man, who is the son of God, is the mm. most important takeaway you should have every Easter, is that mm. sin does have an impact on the most important people and on the most important person of all time, really arguably. And it's just, 
you know, you've really got to see where you take yourself and impact it in your daily lives. A lot of people only go to church on Christmas and Easter. And it's interesting because when you think about it, it's like, yeah, but I mean, is that your way of making an excuse to forgive yourself? Because you should be able to, you know what I mean? That's what the salvation is there for. But that's my takeaway for the day. Are you ready to close out? Yeah, yeah. And next time we'll get back into Amos and continue on with that study and maybe see if anyone has any other ideas for where we go next. I have an idea, but it uh, it's a big idea. So uh, we'll talk about that more next time. So thank you for listening to Revelation On Demand podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you catch podcasts from. Please, if you like what we're doing, share this with a friend, family member, or someone from your church. This is a completely private venture and we receive no funding from any sources. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel to contact us at revelationondemand at gmail.com. God bless, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.